Hello, my name's Jim White and welcome to It's Friday, your weekly guide to the best of arts, culture and entertainment to illuminate lockdown. Join us every week by subscribing on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, don't forget to sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk. This week... An old friend makes a welcome return. Yes, Bob Dylan, the man who first kick-started the 60s, is back. I fuss with my hair and I fight blood feuds. I contain multitudes. And joining in the welcome return of the greats, National Treasure Alan Bennett's Talking Heads is back on our screens, some 32 years on from its first outing. This is a nice civilised evening. Give us a kiss, toodle pip. Talking of legends, we pay tribute to Dame Vera Lynn, who passed away this week, leaving behind a song which, 75 years after it was recorded, became the soundtrack of lockdown. We'll meet again don't know where, don't know where. First, though, this Saturday evening is the summer solstice. Yes, it's the longest day of the year, which, uh, the pessimists will tell you, means from Sunday the evenings will start closing in. You may not have noticed uh, that we've reached the peak of the season, as this has been a summer like no other. Lockdown, stuck at home without any prospect of a holiday. But if you feel in need of a dose of sunshine, what never fails to cheer is a good old summer movie. Summer has long been Hollywood's default season. It's warmth and sunshine, gifting not only elements of nostalgia and whimsy, love and laughter, but it also provides a deceptive mask for darker and more dangerous undercurrents. Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, something is likely to leap at you from under those inviting ripples. With me to discuss the joys of summer in movie land are Claudia Connell, the Daily Mail's television guru, and the Mail's film man, Brian Viner. Claudia, what film for you says summer more than any other? A couple of picks. The first one I'm going to go with is, is Stand By Me. This came out in 1986. Um, it was River Phoenix's sort of breakthrough role, and it was about a group of boys who were friends. They're 12 years old, and it's set in Oregon in the 1950s. And they decide they're going to go on this adventure. Um, they're actually looking for the, the body of a missing child, which is quite a grisly subject matter. But that's almost irrelevant because it's just a film about sort of childhood innocence and, and friendship. And um, and these boys are all fighting their own personal battles as well. And the reason I love it is that it's they all the boys know that it's uh, probably their last big holiday before they go off to they go their separate ways and go off to different schools. And it, it really reminds you of those endless long summer holidays when you kid it just seemed like the summer holiday last forever didn't it and it's just really beautifully shot there's a there's a lovely scene actually where the boys are on on their adventure and they they try and uh, dodge a train it doesn't go too well but we, we can have a listen here train! oh shit Move it, man. Go on, move it. Stephen King wrote that, of course, uh, Brian, and that's one of the things about there's always there's always something just slightly under the surface, isn't there, going on? Sparkling water, but something nasty underneath it. Yes, uh, you, you, your um, 
Are you leading us towards talking about Jaws here, Jim, <laughs> by any chance? <laughs> That's a very yeah. good point, yeah. yeah. Jaws, of course, was the ultimate summer, summer holiday movie because the summer holiday was ruined. The kind of Boris Johnson-like mayor of the, uh, of the, of the place you know, tried to clear the beaches but did it far too late, as we can hear now. What would you go for, Brian? For me, the definitive summer movie is, is, is uh, well, it's clear from its title, really, as well as its content. It's called The Long Hot Summer. Uh, it's not, you know, not everybody will have heard of it because it goes back to 1958. But it was a, it's a real sizzling melodrama set in the Deep South, set in Mississippi. And it's based on a few of William Faulkner's stories. So he, a little bit like Stephen King, lots of his, lots of his stories were turned into movies. Uh, and it stars Paul Newman at his at his sexiest uh, and Joanne Woodward who and the two of them are a sort of at loggerheads for most of the movie but um, but they were actually married during the production so the backstory of the film is um, is interesting from that point of view I'll tell you a bit more about it but there's a clip where you can hear the two of them where they finally kind of he finally kisses her he, he, he tells her he's going to kiss her and she's she's been resisting him for the hold of the movie he's this young drifter who's suspected of being a barn burner who sort of insinuates himself into her family which is which is headed by the ferocious will varner played by orson wells but anyway let's just listen to this clip all right you proved it i'm human yes ma'am you're human all right barn burner Well, you hit on it. I can see my white shirt and my black tie and my Sunday manners didn't fool you for a minute. Well, that's right, ma'am. I'm a menace to the countryside. All a man's got to do is just look at me sideways and his house goes up in fire. And here I am living right here in the middle of your peaceable little town. Right in your backyard, you might say. Guess that ought to keep you awake at night. You know, I've never seen this movie, Brian. How have I missed it? Uh, honestly, Jim, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, it is a melodrama, and it is, you know, it has dated a bit, and you will think, oh, well, you know, this is... This is a bit silly here, but it's but it's, the performances are wonderful. There's not just Newman and Woodward, but and Wells, but Lee Remick is in it, and uh, Angela Lansbury is in it, and it's just so great. And it just says summer to me because you know it's the, the you can practically see the steam rising, not just in a sexual tension kind of way, but also you know just just the sheer heat of Mississippi in the summer. It's great stuff. Uh, and, and Claudia, what else do you need a bit of air conditioning when you go watch? What else heats you up? Well, another sort of like a summer romance movie, probably not quite as sort of chic and stylish as uh, as Brian's choice, but um, Shirley Valentine. I mean, that that's a great sort of summer romance film. Um, Pauline Collins plays uh, Shirley, who's this middle-aged, really sort of housewife who's just kind of lost any joy in life and she decides that she's going to go on holiday without her husband with her friend to Greece her friend ends up dumping her and she ends up having this maybe ill-advised romance with with a local man Costas who's played by Tom Conti and um and it, it ends up sort of bringing it 
a bit of a, a sort of spark and joy back into her life. And um, there's a very, very memorable scene of them um, where they, they go for a picnic on a boat and Shirley sort of strips off and they go skinny dipping. I think we have a little clip here. I want to jump in. Do you want to swim? I want to jump off the roof. <laughs> I think um, Shirley Valentine is um, a bit crazy. Costas, Shirley Valentine is loop of loop. The only thing is, I, I, I haven't got my cosy on. No cosy waters. Mr. I'm in costume. Ah! Now, that definitely says uh, summer holiday, Claudia. Brian, what else is sizzling in your front room over the summer? <laughs> well, I've always loved the talented Mr. Ripley, and especially at the moment where we, where we can't, we have no real prospect anytime soon of going on holiday to that part of Italy and the, where, it, where it was set. It's a, it's a really terrific film made in 1999 by Anthony Minghella, who very sadly died when he was only 54. And this film is a reminder of just how good he was as, as a director. It's based on the Patricia Highsmith novel, which was set in 1955. And it's, so it's kind of quintessential 50s, quintessential Italy in the sunshine, in the summer. But it's a very dark and sinister story of this Tom Ripley character played by Matt Damon goes out to Italy from America and has to bring back a, a young, the young playboy. He's been paid by this guy's father to bring back a young sort of millionaire playboy played very well by Jude Law, whose name is Dickie Greenleaf in the movie. And he's, he's in love with Gwyneth Paltrow and Kate Blanchett is in it and Philip Seymour Hoffman is fantastic in it, but it just gets more and more sinister. And eventually there's a kind of terrible traumatic scene in a, in a boat and we've just got a clip of that now. No, I'm bewildered. Forgive me. You're, you're lying to Marge and then you're getting married to her. You're knocking up Silvana. You're ruining everybody. You, you want to play the sax. You want to play the drums. Which is it, Dickie? What do you actually play? Who are you? Huh? Some third-class mooch? Who are you? Who are you to say anything to me? Who are you to tell me anything? Actually, I really, really do not want to be on this boat with you. I can't move without shut you up. moving. Shut Gives me the creeps. You give me the creeps. You can't you move shut without... Dicky, 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 like a little girl all the time. Shut And... It's not just the fact we'll not go on holiday in that movie. The, one, of the, uh, one of my favourite scenes from that movie is something we can't be doing under lockdown, which is where they all go to the nightclub and everyone's crowding around and a Jude Law gets on stage and sings Americanos. It's just fantastic. Two of all Americano, Americano, Americano. Isn't it fantastic? It's fabulous. It's so it's so stylish. The whole the whole film. Most of it was was shot in Ischia, which is an island in the Bay of Naples, and it's just and it and it just it just says for all the kind of sinister and kind of ghoulish dimensions to that film, it just says summer to me. I'm, I'm sorry, though, uh, the two of you uh, haven't mentioned, surely, for goodness sake, the summer movie of all time, Greece, Summer Lovin'. What more do I need to say? Summer Lovin' had me a blast. Summer Lovin' happened so fast. I met a girl crazy for me. Met a boy 
Brittany Hughes has been obsessed by Greece all her life. Not so much the place, though she is partial to a glass of ouzo, as its history. The cradle of Western thought, much of what we regard as marks of civilization, first surfaced in the Aegean 3,000 years ago. Last winter, Bethany fulfilled a lifelong ambition when she followed the entire epic route Odysseus took in Homer's The Odyssey, his journey stretching some 1,500 miles from Turkey to his home on the island of Ithaca. As is clear from her new series on Channel 5, which began last Friday, this was no pleasure cruise. Oh, these waters are really lovely because they're just above blood heat. Uh, but in some places on the island, the temperatures in the waters can rise to as much as 90 degrees centigrade. Um, and they are absolutely packed with minerals. And you have people coming here day in, day out to treat all kinds of different conditions like um, arthritis and bronchitis. I tell you what I really, really love about this place is the fact that people have been coming here to take the health benefits of the waters and writing about it too for over two and a half thousand years. This looks like, having watched the first episode, this looks like the trip of a lifetime for you. <laughs> it was. I mean, that can be a bit of an overused phrase, but it actually was the trip of a lifetime. So um, I've been going to Greece for 30 years. Uh, I'm uh, absolutely obsessed with its history and myths and what they can tell us and teach us. Um, and I just thought people talk about Odysseus and the Odyssey and, uh, you know, actually we could learn so much by following that route uh, to learn both about the ancient past and about why myths matter and what they're telling us. But it was quite a, it was quite an adventure because we decided to do it over the winter because we thought we shouldn't make it too easy for ourselves. And Odysseus, uh, you know, this great Greek legendary hero, when he leaves the Trojan War, travels for 10 years through the Aegean and gets into all kinds of difficulties and scrapes and storms. So we thought, slightly stupidly, we'd try and do the same. And we did get caught in storms and, you know, at one point, oh my gosh, nearly thought we were going to get shipwrecked and all of that. So we were definitely, it was definitely living history. I mean, the interesting thing about it is you're, you're going to places that took a heavy toll uh, on ancient shipping. But actually, disaster provides us with evidence now, doesn't it? The well, fact those ships went down and why we know about them. Well, that, that's absolutely right. So, you know, we start off in, um, for, for the first episode of this programme, we go to this amazing, amazing underwater archaeological dig, sort of off the coast of Turkey. Um, and it's called a, a graveyard of ships because there are about 58, 58 shipwrecks down there. Um, and as you say, these are tragedies, um, but of course it's like Pompeii, you know, it's a, it's a human tragedy which terribly, with a sort of dreadful irony, allows us to appreciate and cherish and respect the people who were involved in it. So, I mean, these shipwrecks, you go down and there are whole plates, piles of plates like you'd buy in kind of Ikea or TK Maxx or something today, um, just stacked as they are. So we learn a huge amount about the people of the past. And you're right, because actually ships and trading and travel was what stitched together the Mediterranean. Um, so it's the real story of the world under the sea. 
I'm amazed how much there is still there. Yes, I mean, exactly. in the first episode, we see some divers going down there and it's all just lying around almost. Yeah, well, it's, well, it is. I mean, and that's because you've got to be really specialist. To, you've got to be a, a really special kind of underwater archaeologist. And there are specialisms within specialisms to allow you to go down and have a look at what's there. Because obviously, if it gets disturbed, it's, it's the evidence um, destroyed. But there is an extraordinary amount. So, you know, I was holding lamps with Roman gladiators inscribed on them and beautiful wine jars and olive oil jars that were traded. 2000 years ago no i mean it is it's a remarkable wealth of evidence we always think really the kind of seabed is the is the world's greatest accessible public museum and you were following odysseus's trip what did you learn about the myth that you didn't know already uh, well, in many ways, actually how true a lot of it is. So both in terms of sort of big ideas. So the story of the Odyssey and Odysseus is basically, even if unexpected challenges are thrown in your path, how can you survive? What you, can you use? And it's all about resilience and wit and will that allows you to, to make it home. Um, that home is where love is. It kind of doesn't matter where home is, but it's where you are loved and love people. I think we've all really learned that through through lockdown. Um, that you should never take things for granted is another big um, lesson of the of the myths and sort of the Atlantis myth we go and explore on Santorini. And that whole story is about civilization carrying on, people thinking they're living a beautiful life, and then the totally unexpected um, comes out, in this case, out of a giant eruption and flood and sea and, and destroys them. And there is actually a real settlement on Santorini, on the island of Santorini, that was destroyed by this massive volcano and then tsunami and floods around 3,500 years ago. So it was both the kind of big truths of the myths and then these incredible little moments, as I said, which tell us really that uh, there are these kernels of truth in the myths and legends. I mean, so I think probably one of the most striking things, really shocking, was we were on Crete and there was an archaeological dig and there'd been an earthquake there and there's evidence of the sacrifice of a young girl to appease the gods so she's been um, decapitated and her skull's been split open and it, it's a terror it was it's horrific it's a terrible thing to see this again happened about 3,200 years ago but suddenly all those stories that you hear in the myths like um, the daughter of the king Agamemnon Iphigenia being sacrificed so that the sailors and warriors can travel to Troy so that they can get fair winds to go to Troy. At the end of the Trojan War, there's another sacrifice of a beautiful Trojan princess, Polyxena, who was betrothed to Achilles. So those stories feel to me like they're actually telling us about the real history that happened back in the Bronze Age um, and back in prehistory. Uh, there's been a lot of kind of historical not revisionism but looking back at historical figures uh, recently Odysseus is he a man for our time he's absolutely not so he's he's a pretty young reconstructed man I would say Odysseus <laughs> you know he goes on this trip of 10 years he spends seven years making love every night to a sort of goddess um, uh, nymph Calypso he gets very very distracted and does not go straight home to his wife Penelope uh, he also has an affair with this this uh, uh, beautiful sorceress called Circe on another island so he definitely gives in to temptation there is no doubt about it um, and he's brutal 
brutal. You know, he's really brutal. He's a sacker of cities. Uh, he slaughters. He's punished by the gods, in fact, because he's so ruthless, not just with soldiers, but with civilians. Um, so, no, he's, he's absolutely not a role model. But what you can learn from him is resilience and the idea that it's down to us to solve our own problems, that we should use all our wits and wisdom um, and actually collaboration with others to deal with the world. And that's what Odysseus learns at the end of the Odyssey, that it's only through the help of other people and respecting other people and being involved with them that means you can survive. So that's a kind of big lesson from the Odyssey. But no, he's definitely, he's definitely, he's, he's not a more modern day hero he's an ancient hero who definitely belongs in the ancient past it is an incredible thing though how much greek myth still plays to us doesn't it i mean you're you're somebody who's been in, absorbed in it for, for much of your working life but it's still so much part of our lives isn't it Totally. I mean, the fact that we use the phrases the whole time, kind of an Achilles heel or the Oedipus complex, or, you know, we know about the the myth of Atlantis and this lost sea. So we, we actually use the, the myths, even if we're not aware of them. But also, I think... The myths are helpful. They like help us understand the world and help us uh, to work out how to live in the world. But more than that, we are creatures of memory. You know, we are physiologically, we carry memory right across our brain. And we now know that we can't have a future thought unless we access a memory of some kind. So memory really, really matters to us. And that's why history in the past matters and why we should never deny it. We should always keep interrogating it. And I always think, you know, we should never live in the past, but we really are fools if we don't accept that we live with it. Uh, we don't know yet. At the moment, you can't. I don't think we're even allowed back to Greece, are we, at the moment? But wh when, are you, when are you next going to get back to Greece, do you think? Um, I have to say... I am absolutely pining to go. I keep on looking. We cut our team. They were amazing. So we produced this whole series. Um, we did the, the editing in lockdown. So everybody was editing at home with kids screaming around them and doing sort of tag teams and some people doing night shifts so they could watch. Um, and I kept on looking at all these beautiful images and just, just reminding myself of how exquisite it is. So I will, as soon as I'm allowed, I am going to get back, back out there um, and make some more shows and, and kind of bring some more stories to people. So I'm keeping, you know, me and my Greek friends are pinging each other the whole time. But it is, it's a sort of, in a way, it's a bit of a love letter to, to Greece and the ancient world, this series. Uh, but now, I, I was very impressed by your seaworthiness. You got a good old dousing in the Aegean uh, in that first episode. Yeah, we we seriously did. Well, I said we were sort of trying to be like Odysseus. Uh, actually, in the second episode, you'll see we're in nine meter waves. So we, we and it was it was properly hardcore. And in that first um, episode, when we got, I was drenched to the skin. I mean, soaked, soaked right through, right down to my pants. And I had to carry on filming. So I had to, I tried to quickly get changed behind some fishing nets into some spare clothes. And the wind, <laughs> the wind was so strong that it took all of my clothes, including my Marks and Spencer's pants, <laughs> right out into the sea. And, and we managed to fish bill hook out most of them, apart from the pants. So my, my M&S pants have been left as a kind of offering to, to the gods <laughs> of the sea. And I'm, I feel terrible about it because it's littering. I never litter, but I littered. Yeah, so, so we, certainly, we certainly went through the storms, you know, as those ancient heroes and travellers did. 
In the news recently, that part of the Aegean has been associated with a, a lot of refugees crossing it, getting uh, ending up in places like Lesbos and Samos. Did you encounter a lot of that? You, I mean, you can't miss it. So um, the refugees are really apparent on uh, Samos and Lesbos and Chios. And when we were in Lesbos, actually, we drove past one of the biggest camps. And it really struck me that um, this sort of terrible thing of history repeating itself as well, because I know as, a, as an ancient historian that there are refugees who've been traveling that part of the world for thousands of years, not just for decades, but thousands of years, always disrupted by war and invasion and civil strife. Um, and, it, you know... It, the ancients knew that too, actually. Aeneas, who's this great Trojan hero, who's the, the, the warrior who famously leaves Troy, and then his descendants go on to found Rome, so he was thought to be the founder of, of the mighty Roman Empire. He was a refugee from Troy. So, so it really, um, seeing them there really kind of collapsed time, and you realise it's this terrible thing of being stateless and homeless and displaced that, has, as I said, has been going on for, for millennia. So it's been great speaking to you. I'll, I'll raise a glass of ouzo and watch the next episode when it comes out. <laughs> do, do, do. Me too, me too. I'd oh, love you to have a chat. Now it's time for Hits and Misses, where the Daily Mail's writers assess the week's new releases and tell us what's worth allowing into your self-isolation and what should be studiously kept at a minimum of two metres. First up, the Daily Mail's film man, Brian Viner. And Brian, if you're able to tear yourself away from uh, Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward uh, sizzling, um, what have you got for us this week? What's new? Yeah, well, there's a, there's a couple of interesting new films, Jim, on streaming platforms. There's one called Resistance, which tells a really interesting story that I must say I had no idea about. It's directed by a guy called Jonathan Jakubowicz. And it tells the story of Marcel Marceau, the famous, the world-famous mime artist who I knew only as a mime. And in fact, I saw it when I was a child. I was taking to see him. Didn't, didn't... Uh, I didn't think much of him, to be honest, but anyway. Uh, but if I'd known some of his backstory, I might have been a lot more impressed because he was a, a real war hero. And he's played in the film by Jesse Eisenberg with a slightly dodgy kind of European accent, which is a bit of a shame. But anyway, he Marcel Marceau helped to save the lives of hundreds and hundreds of Jewish children. He was Jewish himself, which again, I didn't know, he was the son of a, a kosher butcher in Strasbourg before the war. And then the war struck and he, he went, he took himself off to Lyon, the centre of the French resistance, but where there was a particularly unpleasant Nazi called Klaus Barbie, who was known as the Butcher of Leon. And he, he pops up in this film, played very well by a German actor called Matthias Schweighofer. I hope that's the pronunciation is right there. But there's a, there's a lot of tension and, and sort of genuinely chilling moments in this film. It's not a perfect film by any means, but uh, it's very good. There's one moment where Marcel talks to his girlfriend, played by Clemence Poesy. She's a wonderful French actress, and says, look, you know, are we just going to carry on resisting and sabotaging the Germans, or are we going to focus our attention more on saving the kids? Let's listen to that clip now. What? They don't care about Klaus Barbie, you know, or a bunch of Gestapo slaves that we may kill, if we are lucky. No, you're right. They care about killing us like they killed her. So what's the best way to resist? It's not to kill them. They are ready to die. 
if you want to resist, we have to make sure more Jews survive. Marcel Marceau presumably had the great advantage of when he was creeping up on the enemy, they couldn't hear him coming. Yeah, well, actually, there's a, there's a moment early on in the film where he teaches the children that a whole load of German Jewish children have, have managed to get into France. And he teaches them using his, his kind of mime skills, how to basically hide in plain sight up a tree, how to, as he says, how to make the visible invisible and the invisible visible. It's, a, it's, it's very interesting. And there's another moment where he uses, again, his theatrical skills in a, in a slightly more alarming way by but with a bit of fire swallowing so um so yeah for all those reasons i, I would say it's very much worth seeing and i, I would say it's one of this week's hits and what else uh, have you seen this week, Brian? Well, there's a film I'm not entirely sure how, how you say the title. It's, it's either 7500 or 7500, but the, that, that apparently is the code used by pilots when there's a hijacking on a plane, hence the title of this film, which is, a, as you uh, will realise, is a hijacking drama, a thriller, and it's available on Amazon Prime. And again, it's interesting. It's a low-budget film, and you can tell that. It's all set inside the cockpit of a plane that's being flown from Berlin to Paris and the pilot, the co-pilot is played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, a good American actor. And about um, just a few minutes into the flight and the film unfolds pretty much in real time, by the way, but um, just a few minutes into the flight, the, the cockpit is stormed by these three Islamic terrorists and he manages the Joseph Gordon-Levitt character to sort of force them out, but not before the pilot, his colleague is stabbed so there then unfolds this scene, this situation where he's got to keep the, the terrorists out of the cockpit. They're trying to get in, but they're threatening to kill hostages on the other side of the door. It all, so we only see this from the point of view of the cockpit, but it's very, it is genuinely tense and, and very well done. Let's listen to a clip here. Copy, one, six, two, one, two, emergency. We have a 7500. Open the door! Several men attacked our cockpit. We stopped them for now. The captain is injured. Status of the crew, I don't know. They have a hostage. They're going to kill him if I don't open the door. Don't stop, please. I can't open the door. Let her go. Please, please, I beg, please. And does it work for you, Brian? Is it, is it as claustrophobic as the way you've made it sound? It, it does, yeah. I mean, there are some, some very good thrillers being made in recent years where the, the whole point, in a way, is the claustrophobia. Locke, I don't know if you remember Locke with Tom Hardy, where it all took place in a car. He was on his own in a car. And then there was Room, of course, the, um, which, which was about the, the, the woman who'd been abducted, which, again, was, was a real, you know, a genuinely good thriller. And, and it, it's not quite in the class of those two films, but it's, it's, it's really worth seeing. It will, if you watch it, Jim, you will think to yourself, well, I'm rather glad I'm not getting a flight anytime soon. Because <laughs> you, wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to have just seen this film and then to, uh, you know, file onto an aeroplane. So it's, it's very good. And, the, and the, uh, the three Islamic fundamentalists, one of them is a boy of only 18. So that becomes an issue as well because he sort of loses, he, he, beca he starts getting kind of terrified by the situation that he has himself created. So it's very good. And uh, well, it's, is it very good? I mean, it's good. Is it thumbs up or thumbs down? Yeah, no, I think it's, we're going we're gonna to give it a thumbs up, Jim. It's gonna, it's, so that's two hits out of two. This one's a hit as well.
Now I'm joined by the male's music critic, Adrian Thrills. Adrian, these are very familiar names you're going to be talking about this week. Yes, I think I think the music business is well and truly emerging from lockdown now, and the big albums are starting to come thick and fast. And uh, we've got uh, we've got two legends. The first, uh, well, the second one's John Legend, but the first one is a, a kind of musical legend um, in his own right, really. Bob Dylan, who's back with his his thirty ninth studio album. Uh, it's called Rough and Rowdy Ways. Dylan's had an interesting sort of five or six years. He spent the last uh, three albums basically trying to reinvent himself as a crooner taking his cue from Frank Sinatra he's been exploring the jazz standards of the great American songbook with it has to be said relatively mixed results but uh, but now he's gone back to what we all expect from Dylan you know he was the man who brought poetry and protest to pop music in the 60s and is responsible for some frankly some of the greatest songs ever written and uh, he's now gone back to his own material and uh, and it's it's a very good record it has to be said he's uh, he, he launched it with um a, a surprise single drop a song called murder most foul that was inspired by the assassination of jfk and that was a 17 minute ramble thankfully most of the songs here clock in a, a kind of relatively sane four five or six minutes and um it's an album again it, it, it looks back it's an album rooted in in kind of 50s rock and roll chicago blues a touch of late night jazz he's got an excellent band uh, but the band themselves they're quite understated and elegant and they really give his songs the chance to shine and as always with, with dylan there's there's some quite cryptic moments there's a there's a song with the very romantic title my own version of you when you actually drill down to the lyrics it's dylan trawling morgues and graveyards looking for body parts to build his own frankenstein monster his own version of you but um i think the song we're going to hear is is i contain multitudes which uh, again it, it kind of almost defies people to try and pin him down there's references to Anne frank in Egypt, Indiana Jones, The Stones. Dylan says he he likes fast he likes fast cars and fast foods, and he carries knives and pistols. And uh, in a kind of weird reference to uh, to Bowie, he says he rollicks and frolics with all the young dudes. And uh, of course, Bowie on his uh, he wrote a song for Dylan, uh, which which described Dylan's voice as sand and glue. And I think uh, I think if we listen to this, we'll see what he means. I've no to make Everything's flowing All at the same time I live on a boulevard of crime I drive fast cars And I eat fast foods I contain multitudes Sand and gravel indeed. I mean, it's been almost the summer of Bob Dylan, hasn't it? There's been so much protest on the streets, particularly in the United States. There's been a lot of reference to his kind of place in society. Are there many protest songs in this album or is it is it all more whimsy like that one? If they're protest songs, they're very cryptic. I mean, you never know with Dylan. I mean, fans fans will pour over these lyrics for months to come, looking for hidden meanings. And you know, I'm sure if you if you dig deep enough, there will be you can find protest. I mean, Dylan is is all things to all fans, really. You can uh, you can take from his songs whatever you want. And um, you know, this this is a one a record that will 
repay repeated examination, I'm sure. All things to all fans, uh, Adrian, but a hit or a miss for you. I think this one is, uh, is indeed a hit. So from one legend to another. Uh, yes, Adrian. yeah, from a musical legend uh, to John Legend, the uh, Ohio soul man who is releasing his sixth album, Bigger Love. He, he's, again, a, a very prolific singer-songwriter. And he, um, he kind of made his name as this kind of romantic piano man with songs like Ordinary People and All of Me. But he's, like a lot of people, he's branched out quite a bit over his last uh, couple of albums. He, re he released an album in 2008 called Evolver, which was a pun on the Beatles' Revolver. And it incorporated some very bright kind of pop influences. His, uh, his last album, Darkness and Light, had some very bluesy things he collaborated with Brittany Howard of the Alabama Shakes and there's a great blues track on this one actually he, he hooks up with Gary Clark Jr the blues guitarist who's worked with Clapton and delivers a really raucous blues number but at, at its heart, the new album, Bigger Love, it's, it's a soul record. And he's, he's worked with the Californian singer, Rafael Sadiq, who's, uh, who's produced it. And Sadiq's skill is really kind of bringing to life all kinds of classic vintage soul genres without ever resorting to pastiche. So there's, there's elements of Al Green and Marvin Gaye. And I think on the song we're going to hear actions, um, I think there's hints of that kind of cinematic 70s superfly soul of, of Curtis Mayfield. Actions speak louder than love songs Speak louder than love songs The melodies they carry on Actions speak louder than love Speak louder than love songs I've been doing it all wrong So Adrian, uh, legend or disappointment? Hit or miss? Well, that song itself is it's about um, Legend's unsuccessful attempt to woo a woman through song. He kind of says it's another so love song that he wasted. But I think the love songs on this one aren't wasted and it's a hit. The wonderful and remarkable Dame Vera Lynn has died at the age of 103. Um, Adrian thrills, and that's just an almost impossible question, but can you put into context her legacy it is remarkable isn't it yes jim it's a very sad day and i think to, to call her a, a national treasure doesn't even really do her justice she was a, a completely timeless artist who embodied the power of music to unite and inspire in tough times she always had this ability to to keep our spirits up and she was she was an obvious inspiration to the wartime generation you will meet again you know such a morale boosting song but also she she had a quality that, that still resonated and the fact that she was quoted that song was quoted in the queen's tv message just two or three months ago is, is indicative of, of her, her timelessness and she had a great voice she had uh, a naturally good technique she wasn't classically trained but there was an unmistakable inimitable quality and she, she also had this thing that all great singers had is that you just believed her she had she had a warmth and an ability to to reach out whether she's singing about kind of precious personal things family and friends you you kind of 
believed in what she was singing, you know, a, a, a truly golden voice. I mean, that, that's right. The, her record is, 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 is astonishing. I don't think anyone's ever going to match that, are they? So I, I think you can see her influence in, in the music of countless younger performers. I think there's elements of, of what Vera Lynn did in the music of Catherine Jenkins. I think Adele has some of that ability to kind of reach out to an audience. But... I don't think there can ever be anyone who has quite the longevity and and transcends generations quite like Vera Lynn did. Um, you know, she had hit records. She she made We'll Meet Again in 1939, and she had a hit with it in 1940. Um, so to to have hits in that decade and still have hits in the current decade is is just something I don't think we'll ever see an artist with quite that span again. Again, don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. Keep smiling through. Dame Vera's daughter, Virginia Lewis Jones, was our guest on It's Friday recently. And you can hear her talk about her mother's legacy on our 29th of May edition, which is available on Google, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And finally, Claudia Connell, the Daily Mail's television writer. Uh, Claudia, your recommendations have been very, very good over the last uh, few weeks. I thought the Salisbury Poisonings was an excellent uh, piece, as as was the house through time. I hope you got something to match it this week. Um, Don't hold your breath, Jim. (laughs) Let's start with uh, Talking Heads. Uh, These are remakes of the Alan Bennett monologues that were first screened in the 80s and the 90s with a a host of well-known names that sort of fronted them. And, And... so we've got some great new names doing the new versions as well. There's 12 in total, 10 old ones and two complete new ones that Alan Bennett has written. And the BBC are going to screen two this coming Tuesday and then they're going to make the whole lot available on iPlayer. The first one that I'm up is A Lady of Letters and this is a remake that was originally um, was originally done by Patricia Routledge and Imelda Staunton takes over. Uh, I, of the four that I've watched, I would say that this is the best one. She plays Irene, who is this sort of curtain-twitching old busybody who writes endless letters to complain about everything and she spies on her neighbours and she reports them for what she thinks is their wrongdoing. I mean, all the monologues feature very funny observational dialogue, but there's always a dark side. And in the case of Irene, she's just sort of desperately lonely. Um, Less successful for me was the one that Jodie Comer does. Um, It's her version of... It's called Her Big Chance, and she plays a bit part actress who succumbs to the casting couch in order to get her big break. And that was originally done by Julie Walters. And in this case, I, I have to say it's not quite as good, the new version. Um, we, we can listen to a clip here, and this is sort of a montage of, of all of them. I shot a man last week. Really? Nobody normally gets killed around here. It just breaks your heart. And you won't believe this. Oh. It was with a harpoon gun. Typical. (laughs) Stop it! Stop it! This is the great and good of British acting, brought together by Nick Heitner uh, of the Bridge Theatre. Um, Real quality. I mean, does it all match what happened in the 80s? 
Well, I mean, your thing is your your enjoyment is going to depend on just how mu- how you feel about monologues. Anyway, I've I've got to admit I am not their greatest fan as a form of entertainment. Um, but of course these were all filmed in lockdown using social distance filming. So so for that aspect, they're perfect to one actor drama. Mm-hmm. And my problem is that you know, some of some of them are thirty years old and they don't the dialogue and the content doesn't quite date for all of them. Um, the, the two new ones were desperately needed. And my favorite of those um, stars Monica Delan and she is called The Shrine. And that, that was another good one as well. So overall, Claudia, a hit or a miss? The performances are great. So I'm, I'm going to say that it's a hit. And is it monologues a go-go? Have we got more monologues in your other recommendation? Um, well, next, next I'm going to talk about The Luminaries, which starts um, on Sunday on BBC One. And actually, you know what? I couldn't tell you what this is. It's, it's a new six-part <laughs> drama. It's based on the Man Booker Prize winning novel, which was very complicated, this multi-layered story about the New Zealand gold rush in the 1860s. And it was all tied up with romance and witchcraft and murder and this obsession with the signs of the Zodiac as well. So it was always going to be a challenge to bring it to the TV screen. Eve Houston is the star of this, and she, she's the daughter of Bono, um, and she plays Anna, who travels to New Zealand to find gold and seek her fortune. But along the way, she gets robbed, and she ends up becoming um, this sort of opium-addicted vagrant, so not really what she set out to do. Um, I mean, it all sounds very exciting, and it would be if, if we could just work out what the hell is going on. I mean, flashbacks and time jumps can work, but when they're overused, they just end up frying your brain, and that that's what happens here. I've, you just think, oh, I haven't got a clue. Is that happening now? Did that happen in the past? It's not, they're not great at sort of signposting things. I mean, let's listen to a little clip here. Dirty business digging for gold. Did he die or was he killed? A single moment, so everything could change. There was a kind of magic between us. Where is Emery? You killed him. No. Do you know the penalty for murder, Miss Waddle? Yeah, Claudia, it does mm. sound very confusing. So where are you going on this? Uh, very confusing. Are you sitting on the fence on this one? Oh, no, I'm not sitting on the fence. I mean, I have to say, Eve Hewson is, is a really beautiful woman, but I don't think she has the greatest range as an actress. I mean, she spends an awful lot of time sort of staring out into the middle distance, which, she, I mean, she does that very well, but anything that's <laughs> a little bit more challenging is, is a struggle, and there's no chemistry between her and her love interest either. So, um, you know, it's a shame I was in the mood for a good period drama, and this is not it. This is a myth. Well, now you know what should be welcomed into your social bubble and what should be sent immediately to the back of the mile-long queue outside your local Primark. My thanks to Brian, Claudia and Adrian. Now we head across the Atlantic to discover what Jackie Stephen, the male's own celebrity celebrity watcher, has been up to in New York City a place that's finally waking up after its three-month-long slumber. Now, Jackie, I was reading uh, that in certain parts of New York State, you can actually go out and get a cocktail. So have you been lining up outside your nearest cocktail bar then? (laughs) Well, I'm in New York City, and we don't enter phase two until next Monday. You can certainly go out for cocktails in, say, Beacon, uh, the Hudson Valley. I was up in Albany last week, and I came back after a couple of hours because although they are supposedly in phase two, there were so few places open. And when you enter phase two, you're allowed to dine on the street 
but you still have to keep your mask on when you go to the restroom. But if you're sitting at a table, socially distanced, uh, you can have a meal. Uh, but I think it's still a takeaway meal. I'm not sure if you can whether they're cooking in the restaurants. It's very, very complicated. And now our governor is saying he might even delay it longer because what's happening is that people are going for their takeaways. They're lingering on the streets without masks on. And he's worried there's going to be a spike. In all the states where they opened up earlier, or certainly most of them, I think it's nine states, they have seen a huge increase in the numbers of people being admitted, of positive results, of deaths. So there's a big worry that there's a spike going to happen if you open too early. So pretty risky to go outside. You've been sitting in your uh, flat. What, what have you been doing with yourself? Well, I've decided to self-quarantine again because I was out last Friday and all the people around me weren't wearing masks. I was getting a couple of drinks from a bar there. The bartender had a mask on, uh, but everyone was lingering outside and... You know, I didn't want to risk it. So I haven't been out since last Friday and I'm going to give it until next Friday <laughs> because I just don't want to take any risks. It's too difficult here at the moment. And people think this pandemic is over. It's not. There's, of course, people want it to be over. Life is very, very difficult being in lockdown. And I have my meltdown days and they're getting more and more week on week. But I, at the end of it, I want to be alive. Very good point. Uh, I mean, presumably you're watching a lot of telly, are you? How are you? How are you oh, I'm watching so much television. In actual fact, I've got a real neck injury because I keep falling asleep on the sofa every night because I'm watching so much. And uh, I'm, I'm binge watching a lot of things that it, it's good to catch up on stuff. But one of the problems is that a lot of shows have run out of episodes. And the difficulty now is when they start to rewrite things. Writers are now complaining, saying that they're being limited to scenes with two or three characters and they can't have special effects like they were able to before. So it's going to affect the way that television is. Robert King, who did The Good Wife, The Good Fight and Evil at the moment, says, oh no, we can't have network shows being more boring than they were before. And he's very worried about writers bringing them down to two or three character scenes. And he said... You need to find ways that are visually interesting and inspired. And if you start limiting things, it'll just be, why do I want to watch that? I'll wait for the newest Netflix thing that's shot in Hungary or somewhere or other, and people are sitting on each other's laps. And I think this is a danger. He said everyone needs to calm the F down and not write with the idea of limitations in mind, or at least not the guiding force of them. One of the things we've had an awful lot here, and Claudia was talking about that, is the monologue. Are you? Is television full of monologues in, in the States? It's not really at the moment. One of the things that you have at the end of the season in the summer are the reality shows where they have the reunions. So what you've actually got is about 15 Zoom people uh, in one place. Uh, you don't see any monologues at all. Americans couldn't do a monologue if it saved their lives. I mean, <laughs> they literally could not be without other people for any period of time whatsoever. So what is the new face of television going to be then? I mean, what, what, how do you predict it? I think it's going to be very, very difficult. I think we are going to see socially distancing scenes. But the thing that it's affecting more than anything is in sport. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said this week that the US tennis tournament will go ahead at the end of August as planned, but there won't be any crowds. So it will be on television. But I will find that very bizarre. I love watching tennis. But tennis without crowds, it's like an abattoir without animals. It's going to be really, really odd. Very, very odd that. I mean, I... I been to Wimbledon years and years. At the US Open, does someone shout, come on, Tim? 
like they always do at the, uh, Wimbledon. Well, they never shouted, come on, Tim, even when he was competing. So I'm very much glad out there doing it now. It's, it's going to be very strange. But at least I can still sit at home and I can look at Nadal and go, get your shirt off, mate. So that's not going to change anything. Well, that is something to look forward to. Thanks, get your shirt off for the girls, love. It's the only reason I watch it anyway. Brilliant. Thanks, Jackie. Okay, good to talk to you. And that's it from It's Friday. We'll be back next week and every week via Spotify, Apple and Google. And don't forget to sign up to your daily briefing from mailplus.co.uk. And if you'd like to drop us a line, we're on It's Friday at mailplus.co.uk. Until next week, I'm Jim White. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us.